it's dawn, look what I've become, scum. A relic, a satellite, I was born bright. is hell. Yikes. Sometimes I turn up my headphones too much. Sometimes I turn them down too much. Struggling with my headphone volume control. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing in alphabetical order, our Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, it's good. It's going to get a lot better if the guest <laughs> writes me back with their phone number in uh, the next couple of minutes. I keep refreshing my phone uh, in my inbox. And I get a message, and it's just from Bernie Sanders asking for more money. <laughs> so last Thursday, we were supposed to have Sharon Lerner on the show. We could not uh, get our phones to work for whatever reason. Alex and Theron and Jonah worked on it over the weekend and got everything fixed. So now we believe our phones work. But unfortunately, today, our guest has not gotten back to us with a phone number. Luckily, Sharon Lerner, who is going to be talking about the Trump's war on the war on cancer, will be on tomorrow's show. So if you were upset that you missed Sharon Lerner last Thursday, you will be able to hear her tomorrow on Wednesday's show. And if we can't get today's guest on, we'll have her on Thursday's show. Also producing this week is Jonah Tomko-Smith. Jonah, how was your weekend? Uh, it was pretty good. I've been playing this game that Alex recommended to me, uh, where you like design train lines, and I have officially gone insane. <laughs> what is the name of the game? Uh, Mini Metro. Shout out. Oh, really? I really got to try that. I got a three-dimensional, you know, like a regular board game uh, a couple years last year called Tokyo Highway. And what you do is you build a model of a highway, and the com- competition is between people who can make the most efficient highways in Tokyo. Oh, it's a God. gigantic model that you work on together. What's it called? Tokyo Highway. I want to play this. You got to check it out. I'm so afraid to open up the box. I'm so afraid to, like, read the instructions that it'll take me 15 years to learn about it. So You should bring this to office hours, honestly. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll bring it up here. It'll be great. Today on This Is Hell, life during climate change is extreme with environmental degradation, shoreline loss, flooding, and more weather systems with more ferocity being regular features in our daily lives, even for those who are still in denial of climate change's existence. As the New York Times reported on today's front page, climate change is causing linguistic acrobatics among states seeking emergency relief funds for damage caused by weather events because the Trump administration will not release funds that are requested due to the words climate change. But there are people here in the United States that have been dealing with a loss of their lived environment for centuries, and they might be able to show us the way forward toward a more sustainable future, living with nature rather than simply exploiting it until there's no nature left. In a few minutes, hopefully, we'll talk to sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Kari is Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at University of Oregon. Since 2011, Kari has published and taught in the areas of environmental sociology, gender and environmental environment, race and uh, environment, climate change, sociology of culture, social movements, and sociology of emotions. So that's gender and environment, race and environment. <laughs> Kari's prior book is 2011's Living in Denial, Climate Change, Emotions, and Everyday Life, which is a seminal book on understanding climate change denialism. Kari is a post-recipient of the Pacific Sociological Association's uh, Distinguished Practice Award. Alex, can you turn on the music just a tiny, tiny bit? We'll also have some rotten history, and uh, Alex will reveal this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, as well as what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing again, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. This is hell. And like I was saying last week, we're not as much about preaching to the choir as we are about going out back behind the church and getting the choir really 
really stoned, which was the tagline I used to introduce last week's monologue when I dared myself to ask the question I really didn't want to consider, and that was, are we really worse off with Donald Trump as president than if it was Hillary Clinton who won in 2016? While there were frightening arguments to be made on either side, the Trump administration gutting of environmental rules, which will cost countless lives lost to a variety of diseases from Parkinson's to cancer, and the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, a person who lied, actually lied during his confirmation hearings, definitely tipped the balance to Trump being worse than if Hillary was president. But it's not as easy a question as you think when you consider how Clintonian triangulation gave cover to the rise of the far right by supporting the normalization of hateful terms like illegal immigrant. So who knows what far right concept the Clintons would coddle next. This weekend, I was forced to consider another question I really did not want to ask myself, consider a position that is anathema to everything I believe and possibly change the way I see the entire world. And of course, I was forced into this self-confrontation by the greatest truth teller in the United States today, a small town newspaper. No, it's not the one I got as a gift over the holiday season that I've been talking about, but I did read the paper while finally wrapping up my holiday season. So we just got back from spending a couple of days in, with the in-laws in the central Illinois Twin Cities area of Bloomington Normal, home of State Farm Insurance, but not for much longer as they're moving to Texas, I think, as well as Illinois State University and Adlai Stevenson, who lost as the Democratic presidential nominee to President Dwight Eisenhower twice. Stevenson was also part of FDR's New Deal program, JFK's ambassador to the UN, and opposed LBJ's buildup of forces in Vietnam back when all presidents were known by their initials. Apparently, either that or the greatest generation was the worst generation at coming up with nicknames. Pretty lazy, really, just using their initials. I know all that about Stevenson because Saturday, in the local paper, the Pantograph, there was a full front page article about his life that was very scant on information. It then jumped to a two more pages across a fold, highlighting Adlai's lifetime of accomplishments. Why? I have no idea. And the timing for the massive feature was never explained anywhere, but the message was Adlai Stevenson gave Bloomington some sort of global legitimacy, raising its importance as a cosmopolitan area, attracting intellectuals from all over the world. Or at least that's what residents in the Twin Cities seem to want you to believe. Keep in mind, Stevenson's been dead since the 60s. There's another thing at least one resident of Bloomington wants to believe, and that pre person would be the letter to the editor-writer, Leon Cabe. And what he wants us to believe is the reason there is so much divisiveness in the world, the reason we hear so much hate today in the U.S. media, the thing that has been tearing our country apart, turning all of us against ourselves, is the evil that is gay marriage. Of course, Leon's argument is stupid, bereft of logic and compassion, but Leon's rationale reveals something deeper about the hate he sees dividing the U.S. Leon writes in defense of holding up traditional marriage values in June 2015, I mentioned to some good friends that Christian churches which reject accepting LGBTQIA among their memberships would come under propaganda attacks exactly as is happening in this community now. After the majority ruling from SCOTUS to prove traditional marriage laws unconstitutional across USA, Darkness descended upon the country as we more divisiveness, we had more divisiveness and bitter rancor. So much so that even within religious segments, bitter divisions popped up. All right, let's put aside the racial undertones of Leon using the words darkness descended upon the country. Yeesh. But personally, I'm unaware of any propaganda campaign by Christian churches against those churches that do not accept the LGBTQIA community. Are Methodists actually disseminating biased or misleading information about Presbyterians to promote a pro-LGBTQIA point of view? Because if they are, I'm not sure how cool that is with the LGBTQIA community. I seriously doubt any member of the community wants to mislead people into accepting them into their church. 
But what Leon is also arguing is that all the bitter and divisive rancor in the U.S. is caused by gay marriage when it became legal, which is weird because I thought those thousands of armed protesters wearing bulletproof vests and helmets playing army outside the Virginia State Capitol yesterday, I thought they were causing all the divisiveness and rancor. I, I guess it wasn't that armed mob that descended on the state capitol yesterday, but all those people who got gay married... I guess it's all gay marriage's fault. Just as an aside, if you don't want to don't want too much rancor, you probably shouldn't have Virginia's Gun Rights Day on the same day as Martin Luther King Day, a man assassinated with a gun. There's so many racial undertones to all of this, it's ridiculous. Gun control groups decided to not hold a counter-protest due to concerns of, you know, all those people who showed up with fully cocked and loaded divisiveness and rancor. Leon continues, what was celebrated as love wins has not proven true. I am saddened this has happened, but I believe it is wrongful sexual deeds among the community that causes the unrest. Wrongful sexual deeds. It's really weird how evangelicals are so obsessed with sex. Leon continues, they made these attacks very personal, and I will not, not let stand free choices of individuals who won't accept LGBTQIA as a rightful component to marriage values. No, I don't understand that sentence either. And I don't think Leon did because he wrote it poorly. These values were created by God, whom true Christians worship. Actually, Leon, that's who. Regardless of five SCOTUS justices making the decision to forever change the civil marriage laws, the religious marriage laws of God still stand, Leon argues. And as far as I know, they still do, Leon. The court didn't rule that, say, the Roman Catholic Church must now perform LGBTQIA marriage ceremonies. So I really don't think you have anything to worry about other than other members of your church supporting LGBTQIA and accepting them into the flock and being compassionate and respectful. Something that apparently you don't want to be, Leon. Which is weird because those are pretty Christian qualities, I'm pretty sure. It's somewhere there in the Bible. But let's take Leon's perspective at its word and consider, has allowing gay marriage caused hate to spread in the U.S.? Because I hate hate. I've mentioned it before. I really hate hate, which makes me hate. And there I am, like the haters I, who I hate, becoming them ex exactly as they want me to, provoking me like some emperor from Star Wars trying to troll me into accepting the dark side, which again, George Lucas, that's a real racist name for evil. The gun-carrying mob of white people that surrounded the Virginia Capitol yesterday were trying to provoke that hate, and gun law supporters didn't bite. They didn't fall for it. They let them have their fun, although from images and footage I've seen, it didn't look like that much fun as it did look like an armed standoff. And I guess for gun lovers, there's nothing quite as fun as an armed standoff. I guess. I mean... Enjoy the tension. The gun owners complain that they need guns more now more than ever as the country becomes more divided. But I'm betting all those guns don't make everyone want to come together and hold hands. I really don't know how being armed and surrounding a state capital ends any divisiveness. What the armed mob yesterday and Leon share seems to be that fear of the other, that hatred for them, that unwillingness to accept others that are not like them. And they seem to want to encourage that hate, to spread that hate, to get everyone hating each other so they can finally have the armed insurrection they fantasize about and overthrowing all the LGBTQIA elite who must run Wall Street or something. Maybe be, they're behind the state of Israel. I, are they the Rothschilds? I'm not too sure. There's some conspiracy theory in there. Why is it all those right-wing conspiracy theories? seem to end up supporting what's best for industry and business. But I ain't, I ain't gonna hate hate anymore. I'm gonna love it. Let me put that a different way. I am going to combat hate with love, with understanding, with compassion, with anything but hate, because that is what haters want you to do. They want you to get in the hating game. I know fascists don't listen to anything but force. But if they don't listen, why converse with them in the only language they understand? Hate. Because language is a virus, and once you let that virus of hate speech loose, you can't get it back. And it's now in the world to roam and breed as it desires, multiplying the hate over and over and over again until everyone is hating. 
So I'm done hating hate, and I won't fuel that fire. I don't want to be part of some Clintonian triangulation attempting to co-opt the success the right has had with hate and employing it, launching it to tear away a few votes from the right and dupe them into loving one another. Because I really, really, really hate Clintonian triangulation. And this is hell coming up. Well, let's see. Alex, did we get a phone number from our guest? Uh, no. So coming up, but uh, I just don't have an exact time frame on that. Uh, coming up in five minutes, coming up on uh, Thursday. <laughs> Not too Who sure knows? yet. No. Right. So why don't I do Rotten History now? And then we'll, after Rotten History, if we still haven't heard from her, you have a special interview lined up that you will introduce in just a few minutes. Yep, gotcha. All right. So let me go over to Rotten History. Sorry about this, folks. Two days in a row that we weren't, two shows in a row that we weren't able to get the guest to you. We still have an outside chance of doing it. But I really want to talk to Kari about her book again. Kari Marie Norgard is author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. One of the more fascinating things that she considers in her writing is that if you take into account the experiences of Native American people in fighting for their environment, for their lived environment, which is something that we're all going to have to be doing under climate change, if you take their experience into account, if we say in our schools we learn more about about indigenous cultures, about Native Americans in our schools. Well, that's a very revolutionary thing to do because they are not part of what we see as capitalism and exploiting natural resources till they're basically burned to their end. And that kind of anti-capitalist point of view that the indigenous, that Native Americans have in the United States is one that is very revolutionary, would very much challenge the systems as we have them today, especially fossil fuel consumption and all the environmental deregulation that they have fought so hard to stop. So it's just amazing to think that all you have to do is consider the lives of the people and the lives lived of the people who were the original American, not the original, but who were here prior to Europeans. If you consider those lives, that's a revolutionary thing to do. And that might point us in the direction to a sustainable future where we can actually exist during climate change, because climate change cannot be stopped. It's going to happen. So we better start figuring out how to live with it. And maybe Native Americans can teach us that way. So hopefully we can get Kari, if not on the show today, we'll have her on Thursday's show again. Sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature and Social Action. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby. Gory Rotten History on January 21st, 1968, 58 years ago this Tuesday. Hey, that's today. Near the U.S. Air Force Base of Thule, Greenland, an American B-52 bomber carrying four tactical hydrogen bombs experienced a cabin fire in flight. Experienced a cabin fire. You know, there's nothing quite like the experience of a cabin fire aboard a bomber carrying nuclear weapons. It really is an experience quite unlike any other that includes the warm trickle of urine down your pant leg and the comforting feeling you once had as a child when you would poop your pants. The whole crew was forced to bail out. One crew member was killed in the process. The burning airplane crashed onto the ice in nearby North Star Bay, not far from an indigenous Inuit settlement. The fiery crash ignited conventional detonators on the H-bombs, which in turn ruptured the bomb canisters and spread plutonium and other radioactive debris for miles, which is a good reminder that none of us are safe from U.S. global military dominance anywhere. Not even in Greenland's Inuit can hide from the worldwide arsenal of weapons of mass destruction that threaten us all the freaking time. We're all in constant danger. The subsequent cleanup operation by U.S. and Danish personnel failed to locate an important missing piece of one bomb, and high levels of radioactive plutonium remained contaminating the ancient Inuit hunting grounds. To this day, strangely deformed seals and musk oxen are common in the area, and the dangerous pollution remains a touchy issue in diplomatic relations between the United States, Greenland, and Denmark, and never came up during the entire story of the Trump administration seeking to buy Greenland. That important missing piece of one bomb, rumor has it that the Inuit found it buried in snow and ice 
They then retro-engineered the missing piece, and the Inuit now have nuclear weapons capability with a secret missile program already completed, hiding under Greenland's tundra. Or so the Inuit would have you believe. In rotten history, around midnight on January 23rd and 24th, 1961, 59 years ago, this Thursday and Friday, near the U.S. Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina, another American B-52 carrying two 3.8 megaton H-bombs developed a fuel leak so serious that the plane lost control and the commander ordered the crew to bail out. So seven years earlier, similar problem occurs, and the world continues to pursue nuclear weapons technology to this day. Sure, flying nuclear weapons around in planes above people's heads where you drop bombs from could be very, very dangerous. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? A few deformed seals and frightened Inuit, although they now have nuclear weapons capability, and that could become an issue. Five crewmen parachuted to safety, but three others were killed as the airplane broke apart in midair. Clearly, there were issues with escaping a B-52, and they were not addressed when the same thing happened in Greenland seven years later. One hydrogen bomb was later found intact on the ground, stuck upright in a tobacco field with its parachute caught in a tree. So does Big Tobacco have a nuke? Is that why they got away with giving everybody lung cancer for so long? The nuke in the tobacco field had completed most of its arming sequence, but a single switch in the safe position had kept it from detonating. Seems safe. Meanwhile, the other bomb had smashed into a mud pit and was racked a cleanup crew, found it partially armed, but again, just one switch had kept it from blowing up. So two nukes, two, and I seriously, seriously doubt if North Carolina had been nuked twice would have had any impact on U.S. nuclear weapons policy. The head of the cleanup crew later noted that a detonation would have been more than 250 times as powerful as the Hiroshima explosion. It would have killed everything in an eight and a half mile radius and caused radical change in the state of North Carolina. In other words, from Japan's point of view, Karma, I guess? This cleanup crew successfully removed the bomb's detonator, but most of its plutonium and uranium was buried more than 100 feet deep in the swampy mud and could not be dug out. Instead, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built a 400-foot cover over the radioactive wreck and paid the owners of the tobacco farm, the Davis family, $1,000 for an easement that allowed crop planting or animal grazing, but no drilling or construction. Problem solved. And the Davis family went on to attain superpowers, leaving their family farm behind, but sadly, eventually they were all killed by Thanos. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, any word on our guest? No. <laughs> All right. Tell people what we're going to be playing right now. All right. Now we're going to be playing an interview we did in March 24th, 2018 uh, with Kim Baca, journalist who wrote the In These Times article, Native Communities Are Fighting for a More Inclusive Farm Bill. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. And we're going to be playing this interview now. Apologies for not being able to get Kari on the line. We're hoping to reschedule her for Thursday. So tune into that. And after this guest, Alex will be telling us about what's happening on next week or tomorrow show as well as this week's question from hell all right alex let's hear it yeah might have bad everyone here's kim bucca yes the farm bill may be a site of increased sovereignty for native americans i mean it makes sense once you learn how the food system currently works on native lands and here to teach us freelance journalist kim Baca wrote the article that appeared at civil eats headlined native communities are fighting for a more inclusive farm bill farm policy has long ignored tribal governments and communities a coalition of tribes aims to change that you can read it at civileats.com welcome to this is hell kim Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kim also writes at Indian Country Media Network. This article is part of a series published by Civil Eats in partnership with Gather, a documentary chronicling the movement of uh, before Native American food sovereignty. And you can find out more about that film at gather.film. You write how in Oklahoma there is now, quote, the first tribally owned meat processing plant in the country. In addition to processing its own beef and bison, the 4,800 member 
Quapaw Tribe manages four greenhouses that grow fresh herbs and vegetables and a bee operation that both pollinates its uh, plants and produces honey. The Quapaw people also roast their own coffee, which they package and sell. Earlier this year, they opened a craft brewery participating in Greater America's Enterprise System. The Quapaw also use some of what they produce to feed their own people and surrounding non-native communities in addition to supplying the steakhouse and restaurants at its casinos with freshly grown food. The tribe distributes bison to senior citizens and at the Reservations Daycare Center. Now, this sounds absolutely fantastic. As you say, this is the first. But how much promise is there that this model can be repeated on indigenous American land elsewhere? And more importantly, how much promise do you think this has to improve the lives of Native Americans? Well, that's what uh, the members of the Farm Bill Coalition would like to um, get to is... um, by making some of these recommendations um, in the Farm Bill, um, they can have a uh, um, sustainable economy, food economy, the ability to feed themselves um, if some of these provisions are placed in the Farm Bill. And you quote Ross Racine. He is executive uh, director of the Intertribal Agriculture Council saying, our contention is tribes are not sovereign unless they can feed themselves. But today, $3.3 billion of Native American agricultural products go into the commodity market. By contrast, Quapaw is eating what they are growing. How much is Native American agribusiness, if you will, driven not only by the bottom line, but by desire for self-dependence, if not independence? and sustainability, that that is how much is tribal agriculture about more than money? Well, there are some tribes like the Pawpaw that are um, producing and uh, making money. Um, What uh, uh, Mr. Racine was referring to is that there's um, $3.3 billion worth of agricultural products um, that Native Americans are producing Yet, um, a lot of that is going outside elsewhere. And so part of the reason is because um, tribes do not have uh, processing plants or ability to process the food there and so that it can be distributed locally. So a lot of that goes outside the community and then goes into the general food systems. Um, so Quapaw is, is unique it, it, um, it, in it that of itself. Um, but there are some tribes that are contributing to this. Um, and that's you know what the the Farm Bill Coalition is looking to do. They would like um, they've got uh, a report that they've put together, regaining our future. It's a 144-page report, making recommendations in all 12 titles of the Farm Bill, um, from everything from having more research to including uh, traditional ecological knowledge um, to uh, having better access to marketing uh, research and and grants and those types of things so that they're able to do this on a wide-scale basis. How much is the obstacle to being able to process your own food on native lands, to be able to distribute your food amongst different native peoples? How much is the obstacle, the inability for Native Americans to uh, have the loans, get the cash, get the um, insurance that is needed, the credit that is needed, uh, that farmers would need, non-Native farmers need, outside of the reservation? How much is the obstacle the fact that they do not have access to the exact same kinds of lines of credit and capital that non-Native farmers have? Well, part of that is because uh, Native uh, lands are um, held in trust by the federal government. And uh, so what that means is that um, many, many, you know, back in colonial days when they were establishing reservations, uh, they were signing treaties. And so the treaties recognized uh, tribes as sovereign entities. Um, And the treaty said, well, we, within those treaties, it was to protect the lands and then ensure that tribes continue governing themselves. Well, that particular land, the reservation land, is um, owned by the government, and so that's why it makes it difficult for tribes to obtain loans. You know, usually it's um, there aren't many banks or uh, credit institutions on reservations, so the next step would be to go to either the USDA 
which does have a few programs, or to, of course, commercial banks. And so commercial banks just aren't set up to uh, provide these types of programs to tribes because essentially, you know, if somebody defaults, they can't get the land or get any of the assets because it's held in trust by the federal government. So that's the you know the part that people might not realize is that Native Americans do not own the their the land that they are on, and because they do not own the land that they are on, they cannot get access to the loans, the credit, the health uh, insurance that they might need. How is the that lack of access to those uh, aspects of capital unfair? How much is it simply the way of business operates? Is it racism toward Native Americans, or is it that creditors, lenders, and insurers see too much of what they might? Determine? Determine as risk. Well, I, I I don't know if I could speak to racism. I, I, there is a uh, case going through the courts right now that does allege racism, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't know the specific details of, of that case. Um, but uh, uh, there are some programs available to Native Americans, but it, it's not enough in, in terms of especially. Um, one particular producer sector, uh, livestock, um, and then um, they they uh, uh, cite that they need more credit. You know, with um, uh, pricing of livestock, and you know, it goes through its usual market of ups and downs, and so it's hard to uh, account for. Um, when there is losses, you know, such as a drought, you know, how it'll affect. And, and so they, they um, some of the livestock producers have been asking for better credit programs so that it, they can account for those losses. You write, hoping to ensure that the voices of the nation's original caretakers are heard. Native American groups have come together to advocate for more inclusion, greater funding, and extensive re- revisions in the upcoming Farm Bill, which will replace the soon-to-expire Agriculture Act of 2014. Why, it, for those who only look at anything, uh, they only look at it through the framing of the bottom line, why is investing public money in Native American agriculture a good investment? How is this being pitched to those who only look at the bottom line, especially those politicians in Washington, D.C.? Well, basically, uh, when you ask Native people, it's, it's about uh, treaties. This is written into law, um, that promise that uh, uh, for taking the land, you know, the federal government um, said, well, um, we will provide health care, education, and agricultural assistance. That was actually written in those treaties, which were ratified by the Senate. Um, And just for general better health care, I mean, um, this is really about tribes being able to produce their own food and feed themselves. You know, on reservations today, uh, they suffer some of the highest rates of diabetes. Nearly 16% of Native Americans have type 2 diabetes. And then uh, more than 30% of Native Americans are obese. So it's really about the health and the survival of communities, Native communities. So is this... (laughs) When it comes to, down to brass tacks, I guess is is this is this getting the U.S. to finally live up to their obli- to their treaty obligations? Is this about getting the United States to finally live up to the rule of law instead of ignoring the rule of law when it comes to Native American treaties and agreements? Well, it's holding them holding the feet to the fire. Certainly, <laughs> um, uh, this isn't just in agriculture; it's in healthcare, it's in education and other sectors, other promises that the federal government hasn't adequately funded. You write that for nearly a year, the Native Farm Bill Coalition, made up of more than 22 tribes, tribal organizations, and nonprofits across the country, has been meeting to craft policy for the $489 billion omnibus bill, which oversees food assistance for more than 46 million low-income Americans, as well as food safety, agriculture, insurance and losses, uh, agricultural research, and rural housing and economic development. So is this kind of Native Farm Bill Coalition new? or unprecedented? Uh, Well, there have been um, some gains in the last Farm Bill. Um, The Intertribal Agriculture Council and then the uh, 
National Congress of American Indians, uh, which is one of the oldest and largest Native American advocacy groups in the nation, um, I think had some gains um, in the last farm bill. But yes, this is the first time that 50 tribes, tribal organizations, nonprofits that have come together, being that a bigger force or, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. They're continuing to meet with their local representative. They've had certain champions, you know, Tom Udall, Senator for New Mexico, and Tina Smith in Minnesota have all been helpful in, in working with tribes to push us forward. You quote uh, Colby Duran, uh, co-author of a report commissioned by the Native Farm Bill Coalition during a recent webinar saying, the farm bill holds the potential for tribal governments and producers to feed their own people in their own tribal food systems. All of this will help spur economic development and build critical infrastructure, which is lacking in a lot of communities. It will be able to support traditional foods and improve health, nutrition, food access, and food security. Now, Native Americans becoming more food independent, more food sovereign, and creating economic development, uh, becoming self-sustaining. That means outsiders will no longer be able to profit off Native Americans, or at least to the degree they might be doing so now. Are companies that profit or potentially profit off the system of Native American dependence on food, uh, are, are, do, are, they, uh, are they an obstacle to any kind of Native American food sovereignty? Well, cultural appropriation is, is an issue that um, all facets of the various markets face, from uh, artwork to food uh, to reproduction of, of designs, uh, graphic designs. Um, so certainly Native Americans do want, and I, I believe in one of the titles in these recommendations, do want um, some authenticity, uh, a stamp or something that would say this is an authentic American Indian food product. Um, I, I don't remember if there was something along those lines already in place, but definitely that's something that's being talked about. And you touched on uh, public health reasons for this as well, and I want to get to that in just a few moments. But you write the disadvantages Native Americans face when it comes to land and food access have roots that stretch back centuries. Starting in the late 1800s, the federal government used treaties to force many to convert to a Western model of agrarianism and land management. How different is that kind of agriculture from what Native Americans practice? Well, they, they produce... Uh, to eat, to live, to survive. And uh, right now, um, because of uh, the way that uh, the reservation set up, many of them were set on some lands that were not very inhabitable. Um, and some tribes, um, there are some tribes who, who are uh, agriculture-based. They have always farmed. Um, I'm part uh, Santa Clara Pueblo, and, and farming is been a practice since time immemorial, but for others, especially on the plains, um, that they were forced to become farmers, you know, something that, that they weren't accustomed to. And so it completely changed the, the way that um, their culture and, and uh, food systems, um, how they're used to either hunting or foraging for food, changed their livelihood and their culture, essentially. You write with limits imposed on fishing, foraging, and hunting and pushed out to rural areas with limited access to a commercial market. Many tribal people became dependent on food distribution programs, which often contain processed food. As a result, Native Americans suffered from some of the highest rates of diabetes and obesity in the country. How much is the isolation of Native Americans a cause of health problems, and how much can these health problems be overcome by ending the practice of supplying processed food instead of assisting in getting the loans, credit, and insurance needed to begin a farm just like any farmer needs? Well, on, on many reservations, um, there aren't uh, commercial uh, grocery stores. Um, there may be uh, a convenience store, and as we all know, convenience stores have the fast foods, the processed foods, high in sugar and fat, which, of course, um, contribute to the high rates of diabetes and obesity. Um, really just having um, that ability to feed yourself, you know, again, it just um, 
is uh, it helps with the health and survival of Native people. You write that those new SNAP boxes that Trump administration proposed to near-universal outrage earlier this month, they've been regularly supplied to Native American reservations for 40 years. Those are the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program food boxes that drew outrage after President Trump suggested replacing food stamps with food boxes. And this is what you can get with SNAP boxes. Available foods include canned beans, canned corn, canned spinach, dried eggs, dried and canned fruit, peanut butter, and canned and frozen meat. And it seems like that's just about it from the research that I did. Why haven't they, why haven't they been reacted to? Why hasn't this been reacted to? The fact that Native Americans are already getting these food boxes that drew such outrage. Why hasn't this created outrage about this taking place to Native Americans? And why didn't we hear about this when there was all the outrage going on about switching over to food boxes? Uh, there, there was outrage with, within Native groups um, because uh, we know it, has, it doesn't work. I mean, I don't know if you've, you've seen uh, pictures or know exactly what, what's in those distributions. Dry milk, um, fats, uh, processed meats, things that probably don't have um, much nutritional value. And, you know, again, contributed to the, the detrimental um, health of, of Native people, um, you know, coupled with not having access to fresh fruits and vegetables or, or at least having to drive several hours in some cases, such as um, depending where you live on the Navajo Reservation, for example, driving several hours to get that. So, um, uh, yes. Snap boxes, there's been lots and lots and lots of research on commodities, distributions on reservations, and, and the um, poor nutritional value and, and its adverse effects. What so are the, I know that the... Sorry, uh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, the, the Trump administration used, uh, uh, I think, an example of Blue Apron, which was one of those um, monthly uh, food preparation but it, it, the snap boxes are, aren't nearly as fancy or as nutritional as that. <laughs> I know. I thought that was very odd, too. He goes to the most high-end food delivery service he could possibly find. Another thing that, the, that is suggested uh, by Native Americans when it comes to the uh, farm bill is to have uh, the power over their food stamp system. How would issuing uh, your own food stamps be better for Native Americans? Well, we, we know, uh, Native people know what their people need. Um, uh, one of the things that they'd also like to do is, as part of the recommendations um, in the Farm Bill is include uh, uh, traditional foods, you know, long before snack boxes and food stamps and commercial-type foods, uh, Native people either hunted or fished or or foraged, uh, berries, wild onions, potatoes, those kinds of things that were so much more healthy and um, nutritious than things that you find in those boxes. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Senator Tom Udall earlier, a Democrat from New Mexico, saying for too long Indian country has been knocking at the door of each new farm bill negotiation, asking for a seat at the table as sovereign governments alongside states and countries. This year, there is bipartisan support for including Indian country in the farm bill negotiations and adding provisions to support Indian country through sections like those on uh, nutrition and economic development, to name a few. How much is just being at the table of these negotiations a victory for Native American uh, sovereignty? That is, how much is any degree of authority to govern over their land a victory already for Native Americans? Well, uh, Native Americans have made inroads in various places. This is probably the, the one of the places where um, inroads are being made, but very, very slowly. Um, you know, obviously the right to govern yourself, to you know what you, your people need, um, what are some things that, 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 that would help to uh, curb some of these disparities. You know, all of these things um, would be a way for tribes to be sovereign, to, to 
um, live up to um, um, to raise the health rates and, and um, produce food within the community and keep it within the community. Just a couple more questions for you, Kim. You write, though President Trump's proposed 2019 budget calls for large cuts to American Indian programs. Tribes are still hopeful that their voices may be heard, citing several gains in the last farm bill and support from congressional leaders familiar with tribal issues. Why is there any hope for the farm bill if the budget has huge cuts for Native Americans in 2019? That's that's a really good question. Um, but, you know, it seems week to week that... Uh, Something else is popping up in Congress. Um, from what I understand from folks that are watching the farm bill closely, uh, five years ago it, it took um, about a year to, to negotiate, so they were about a year late. And so that the same thing could happen again. Um, in the meantime, um, Senator Udall and others are working on marker bills to help supplement these. Um, for example, Udall has introduced the Tribal Nutrition Improvement Act, which provides funding and um, adds federally recognized tribes to a list of governments authorized to administer federal food programs, such as school lunch, breakfast, and the summer food programs. Uh, the legislation would also allow tribes to directly administer without having to go through state agencies. Kim, I've got one last question for you. We have been speaking with freelance journalist Kim Baca, who wrote the article that appeared at Civil Eats. Native communities are fighting for a more inclusive farm bill. You can read it at civileats.com. This article is part of a series published by Civil Eats in partnership with Gather, a documentary chronicling the movement for Native American food sovereignty. You can find out more about that film at Gather. Dot film. One last question for you, Kim, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I'm just going to hate asking this. You, again, quote uh, Ross Racine, executive director of the International Agriculture Council, uh, saying at, or Intertribal, sorry, Agriculture Council, saying at a recent Senate Committee on Indian Affairs hearing on agribusiness Indian, Indian country, uh, he says, there has never been a society in the history of the world that has survived without the ability to feed itself. Agriculture is a tradition on our reservations, not the product. How much do current agricultural conditions on native land threaten the very survival of indigenous Americans? Well, if you, as he said, if you're not able to, to feed yourself, then you're not truly a sovereign nation. If you're not able to produce food, then you're not able to continue all of the uh, your cultural traditions, your family, your your um, essentially your civilization. That is an answer from hell. Kim, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. Thank you so much. And everybody should check out your writing at Civil Eats. Native communities are fighting for a more inclusive farm bill. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell, and I think that some deity is proving us wrong by making it so our phones didn't work on Thursday. And today, the person who was supposed to be on our show never got our their phone number to us, even though they had promised us to do so. So maybe we'll reschedule the person who was supposed to be on today's show, sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Maybe we'll be rescheduling her for Thursday. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Like us on or like us on sorry, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, and we will be posting any rescheduling news for Kari there later today. Uh, let's see. Oh, so, Alex, I turned on Fox News Channel for... No! I, I, I do this little test. It's really fun to do, and I think everybody should do it. Turn on Fox News and see how long you can watch it before so, something has been said that was incredibly misleading or inaccurate. So, I watched the other day, and I played the game, and it lasted seven seconds. When I turned it on, they said... Defending President Trump will be Ken Starr, the person who prosecuted the Clinton impeachment, as well as Alan Dershowitz. But I left a little thing out there. 
This is how they described him, as well as liberal Democrat Alan Dershowitz. And when I think of Alan Dershowitz, I think liberal Democrat. How about you, Alex? Elite pedophile, but uh, maybe didn't fit on the Chiron. <laughs> also, uh, I saw uh, at a Binnie's down in central Illinois, as is my want, and uh, they had a huge lineup of different beers from Surly Brewing up in Minnesota, and I saw a double IPA, a double hazy, double IPA with the greatest name of a beer that I've seen for a very long time. The name of the beer is the end of the internet which i thought was a really great name for a beer uh and uh oh the final thing i wanted to mention real quick is in that bloomington paper the pantograph well, like I was telling you about the Houghton Lake Resorter, how in their community calendar of the 34 events that they had listed one week, 19 were for Alcoholics Anonymous and Narconon meetings. So I wasn't too sure if Houghton Lake would be a good place to go to if you are a substance abuser or an alcoholic, because it seems like there are a lot of substance abusers and alcoholics up there, or maybe you should go up there because they have such a great support system. So it kind of reveals something about the place that you are in when you look at the community calendar. The community calendar for the Bloomington paper, the uh, Bloomington Pantograph, their community calendar is basically nothing but food pantry hours all over McLean County. So I think that reveals to you that, boy, McLean County is having some real, real rough times. All right, Alex, uh, let's see uh, what's happening on tomorrow's show. Tomorrow, God willing, we're going to talk to Sharon Lerner about her piece, The War on the War on Cancer. Trump's gutting of toxics regulations will mean higher profits for polluters and higher cancer rates for the American people. And Jonah, when are you going to be joining us again here on This Is How? Are you back tomorrow or like Wednesday, Thursday? Uh, God willing, tomorrow. <laughs> Wait, a lot of talk of God on a show called This Is Hell. I don't like it one bit. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, Jonah, Tomko Smith. Thanks to Jonah and Alex for showing up this morning for producing the show. Um, our, our apologies for not being able to get Kari on the line, but we are hoping to have her on Thursday's show. We'll be talking to you tomorrow when we talk to Sharon Lerner about the war on the war, the Trump war on the war on cancer. And then we're going to be back here on Thursday with another live show at 10 a.m. and Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.